You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we're joined by Dr. Vanessa Rentschler, an audiology expert from Portland, Oregon, with a wealth of experience and a doctor of audiology degree from Salus University. Dr. Rentschler specializes in improving hearing and listening skills through direct auditory training. Today, she'll discuss neurodiversity affirming assessment and treatment for auditory processing difficulties. We'll explore how auditory struggles, whether due to hearing loss, head injuries, or neurodivergence, can impact communication and learning. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vanessa Rentschler. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm I'm excited because, um, and, and you and I had a little bit of a chance to talk about this, but the concept of audiology is sometimes not given the the right emphasis throughout the treatment. And I think it's something that clinicians and parents could be better informed about when you're talking about empowering autistic individuals. Um, But before we get there, one of the things I love to be able to do is is give our audience the chance to to know a little bit about what brought you to the field, because we all have that service orientation in us. But I'd love to hear your story. So what sparked your interest in the field of, of autism or audiology? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I went into audiology because, you know, I wanted to go into a helping field where I provided you know, pragmatic support for people, and particularly in the area of communication. And um, along the way, I had my firstborn son who is autistic. So, you know, learning how to navigate everything that goes along with that, um, it's a lot um but along the way i i was reviewing some research by uh dr erin schaefer who's at the university of north texas and so she actually runs a lab specifically where she's working on audiology particularly for the autistic population and so she has a lot of work where she was using devices so um, remote microphones attached to, to receivers or, or hearing aids, basically, and she's able to demonstrate the ability to filter out um, noise from speech. So, you know, this this ability to understand speech in the presence of background noise is a real common problem for folks. It's particularly an issue in the classroom, right? So um, the auditory filtering is actually a really significant indicator of um, educational performance. So the more I looked into her work, I was kind of baffled that there was all of this evidence that this was so effective and I had never heard of it before. So um, I tried it on my son. Well, let me, I'll scooch back. The irony of audiology not being that involved with autism um, supports is that we're usually the first line of when parents are pursuing a diagnosis, they need to get hearing loss ruled out. So for years, I had been testing toddlers hearing, you know, we're, we're, we're ruling out that hearing loss as a factor. You give them the, you know, the, the peripheral hearing's normal, okay, you're on your way, you go to see the developmental pediatrician um, for your diagnosis. And then we're kind of out of the picture. So audiology doesn't 
really come up again unless someone has a peripheral hearing loss and needs um, devices. So I thought to myself, like, this is interesting that, that you know, the, the research is really showing that auditory processing issues are, are almost inherent in autism. That's weird because my son doesn't have that issue, right? So he was very echolalic at the time. So I was able to do some speech testing on him. So um, with the audiometer. So I'm, I've got him in the booth and I have him repeat words in quiet. He gets all the words correct. And then I add background noise and he gets 30% of the words correct. And so it was just, that was the moment where I'm like, oh my God, you know, first the mom guilt hits. I'm an audiologist. My kid cannot hear through any kind of background noise. He can't, no wonder he's not attending to speech um, and retreating into his own um, world. And this is what was really impacting his education at the time. So I tried uh, programming the hearing aids and the remote microphone, and it worked like a charm until the school district decided against it. So there's lots of, it's really, all of this, this information and this work is really compelling and you start going with it and then there's obstacles after obstacle after obstacle. It made me kind of pivot more to this auditory training. So if it's this hard for me to get this in place, I mean, it's an effective tool. And if the school district is on board, I think it's, it's awesome to use devices to help, um, you know, electronically filter out speech from noise. Um, it also can help with sound sensitivity because there's um, like a maximum power output. You can do output limiting. So if when the fire alarm goes off, that's not going to blow out their ears. Um, the auditory system is particularly plastic, so it's really responsive to treatment. So instead of five sessions where you're going to the audiologist to be fit with devices, you could just be going in for direct treatment and almost get the same results, if not more. And so since I've been doing that, I've been noticing not only is there improvement with this inability to filter out noise, but with the more um, debilitating issue of the sound sensitivity. Yeah, I mean, that's I, it's kind of an amazing sort of path through it. And it's always interesting to me, the barriers that one runs into. But there's two things that that stand out from your story, at least for me. First of all, is that, that oftentimes the people who know best about where treatment should be going and how to kind of navigate things are those experiencing that particular challenge and those that are experiencing as far as that journey with that person. And being a parent, it's it's very fun to watch where somebody can take their profession and start to guide us based off of their own personal experience because it it really enlightens what's happening in real world. Um, but the other piece to it is, is that I find it very intriguing that the diagnostic process takes into effect a rule out of audiology and we're learning a lot through that process, yet, like you said, it hasn't transitioned over to the treatment as, as much as it should have. Um, and we're gonna get into kind of that treatment part, but maybe you can give me a little bit more about the assessment part post-diagnostic. And you do it in a neurodiversity-affirming way, but what does that actually look like uh, and maybe you can give us a little bit of a picture of it, of how you do that through that process. Sure. Um, I, you know, I had to 
take from other fields. So obviously, you know, speech pathologists, occupational therapists, these are the clinicians that really know um, about sensory stuff and how to obtain um, data, how to test a child who might be anxious about being there, the communication skills are poor, uh, things like that. So what I do is I actually don't operate within a traditional clinic because I honestly think the anxiety starts there. So, you know, the parents rush, they're late to the appointment, they can't find a place to park, their copay is blah, blah, blah. By the time they would get in to see me in the scary looking refrigerator test booth, you know, forget it. There's no, there's not going to be any calming down to elicit a reliable behavioral responses. So um, behavioral meaning, uh, something I can see and mark down, not behavior like behaviors. Um, so what I do, I have a an office that's in a, a big building where it's mostly like therapists. So it doesn't look like a traditional clinic at all. Um, I don't come in wearing a lab coat or anything like that. Um, it's just a real quiet room. I have it kind of sound treated, but because auditory processing deficits are tested at a level that's super threshold, meaning, um, I don't need the sound booth because I'm not looking for the softest level they can hear. You know, that's so the first step is really ruling out a hearing loss. So that's going to be done probably at a traditional clinic. By the time someone gets to me, hearing sensitivity is normal. What we need to see is how how is this child or adult um, processing speech sounds in particular um, when there's background noise. Also, the big thing that I focus on is a skill called dichotic listening. Um, but anyway, I, you know, have really comfortable like bean bags and cushions and standard chairs and balance boards and basically all the sensory tools. And I just give people, I follow a child's lead. Um, as long as they're still giving me what I need, um, I don't care if they're <laughs> bouncing off the walls. <laughs> Although when they're really active, it is trickier. So I try to get them to sort of focus on maybe like a little fidget, but you know, a lot of what we're doing with auditory processing stuff is repeating words. If someone is um, pre-verbal um, or non-speaking, there's other ways where we can test things by picture pointing. So, you know, oftentimes that receptive language piece is going to be fine. You know, with, that's the important part of the neurodiversity affirming uh, tenant of, you know, presuming competence. Um, just because a child or an adult or anyone seems like they're not paying attention, they probably are and they're probably picking it all up. So under that umbrella, too, is just the fact that, you know, disability is, is natural, um, you know, framing it more as just matter of fact, you know, not this doom and gloom rhetoric of, oh, no, I'm OK, like, you know, this is such a horrible thing. Like, well, OK, people need supports. And in my realm, I'm focusing on how are, how are the auditory issues impacting this person? able to get the, the comprehensive assessment on the auditory processing deficits, but then I also do a lot of intake with the parents uh, or, or the individual if they're an adult via um, rating scales because people can have different profiles or, or kind of like flavors. So some people are more, it's more the issue of the sound sensitivity versus being able to understand speech and background noise. There's also other composite skills that can be impacted, like the ability to localize where sound is coming from, things like that. 
Um, so that was a really long explanation. <laughs> no, but I think it I think it hits onto exactly you know the way that we should be looking at the the neurodiverse community is that I would give that same respect to somebody who is neurotypical is that I would I'd understand that you know this is how you how you learn how you learn how you live your life. So my testing environment should reflect a little bit of that. I shouldn't be removing what you use for your own coping mechanisms for for your way to be able to navigate challenging situations, but instead try and figure out how I can enhance some of the other components to make it so that you're still able to access everything you would like to. Um, and maybe that goes into just understanding and the auditory process and just the auditory discrimination and um, just how that works with somebody who's autistic and and maybe getting back to the roots of, you know, these are the important skill sets that maybe, not all people, but maybe some people who identify autistic have to have to deal with and cope for or find ways to be able to navigate around. Right. One of the obstacles in pursuing this is auditory processing deficit or disorder. There's lots of semantics. Um, there's not a consensus. There's not a professional consensus. So I actually think that if we're able to really get this going for the autism community, then it's it's almost going to help with reaffirming or legitimizing auditory processing deficit treatment for people who are more neurotypical. Because um, if we can address this in, you know, this is my favorite word to mispronounce, heterogeneous, heterogeneous, a population that's so very different, um, then piece of cake to, to do it on someone who's neurotypical and just literally is having the issue of, um, I can't understand my friends when I go to a noisy party, can you help me? Um, with autism research, there's, it, there's so much imaging evidence and electrophysiologic and so much objective evidence that the auditory processing deficits are a real, that they're real, that it's a real thing. You know, you can't separate it from language or higher order skills, of course, because that's not how the brain works. But what's really exciting is that we can do pre and post assessments to, to show the, the benefit. So, you know, and a lot of allied fields don't have that. Um, so I think audiology is in a unique position with some of our tests to, to really, to really, you know, you really can't deny stuff that has this hefty body of evidence. Um, the research to practice gap is huge here. So uh, you know, any like pub do if you do a PubMed search on um, auditory training in in autism, you know, there's there's a lot going on in the research lab. And then, oh, look how effective this is. And then when you look at clinical practice, it's crickets. I mean, yeah. there's just nobody doing this. I, I shouldn't say that. There's me and like 20 other audiologists in the United States <laughs> that are doing it right now. And, and I think that it's it's interesting is that in most aspects of treatment, the very first step you're doing is looking at, is there anything medical that I would be ruling out? And, and like you said, is that, when you're looking at auditory processing, the, the images are showing that there's challenges, that there's a different way that this is being, um, that, that the brain is processing the information. So why would that not be first level to be able to 
enhance the ability for skill development through other processes to really kind of empower the entirety of the child. So I see the value of it. Um, and what are what are those kind of core deficits? And you mentioned being able to filter out background noise, but for somebody who we do not treat the auditory process, the ability to be able to understand and listen and, and, and kind of process the information, what does that do to somebody's quality of life? What does that inhibit as we go forward? Well, when we think of child development, it's that salience of the speech signal. So, I mean, this is one of the first signs of autism, right? Uh, I call my child's name and he's not responding. So it's not that the child can't hear. They're, they're not, their brain isn't recognizing speech as something important to attend to. Um, I think that's also important in terms of, you know, people thinking that autistic people lack empathy and that they're robots. It's like, well, maybe the sensory system is not working in a typical way. So we have our critical periods of language development, right? So it's those first few years that are really important. This is why little kids can learn foreign languages really easy and that gets harder as we get older. So, you know, if... In terms of best practices, I honestly, aside from what I do, um, I don't know how that looks with speech pathology. Um, I know there's some interesting work coming up with auditory motor integration, things like that. So you hear this a lot from autistic folks. You know, I'm, I'm hearing everything. So my brain is prioritizing all the information, not what the teacher's saying or not the conversation I'm trying to pay attention to. So, I mean, you're talking about all these competing stimuli and you're talking about how somebody is trying to be able to process, you know, what somebody might be asking them at the same time as processing something else that's going on around them and maybe even three different conversations. It's got to affect somebody's ability to respond. It has to affect social relationships. I mean, where's the where's the gap come in yes. that you're looking at development really being affected? Right. Well, yeah, not just social social communication, which is huge, but literal speech and language development, like communication at the basic level. You know, this is um, you almost have to think of it like an untreated hearing loss for when if when a child, you know, because of universal newborn hearing screenings, children are identified with hearing loss and they're immediately fit with hearing aid if the parents decide to not learn sign language and and have the child be um, verbal. With autism, it's the hearing sensitivity is normal, but we're we're really forgetting about this fact that they're still not they're still not getting the access to the speech and language cues that they need to to develop appropriately. And um, you know, not and I'm not saying that in an ableist way, but you know, language. This is how we parse information. This is how we connect with humans. So, you know, I think having access to language is a basic right. And so if you have a child who is, cannot discern what's being said, it's like they have a hearing loss that's being untreated. They're not picking up what's being said. Um, and we don't know the extent until we're able to test, which of course we can't quite do that until they're a little bit older to respond. Unless someone has access to really sophisticated equipment that's in the research labs, which of course we don't, we don't have that in the typical audiology clinic. No, and I mean, so as we're, as we're looking at the treatment path, 
So there's all these things that would be happening to somebody if they're not given the appropriate, um, I guess, uh, modifications, treatment, um, technology. Um, so what is the difference between creating some accommodations and then the concept of tolerating noise? And what's the significance that you're seeing as far as it, or do they blend together? Is there is there a, the, the accommodation part? Is that part, part of toleration? Yeah, I'm going to write notes to myself so that I don't meander off topic and then lose what I'm trying to say. So w- what's what's really interesting, the, the more the more I work with autistic individuals and their families, the more I think that maybe the the overlap of a deficit with auditory processing and that decreased sound tolerance, it's almost like they're one in the same. So I have a lot of people contacting me saying, oh yes, my kid has auditory processing uh, deficit or disorder. Um, they cannot, uh, they freak out when the fire alarm goes off. So as uh, in audiology, in, in our field, we actually kind of think of those as two different buckets. Um, but my theory is that they're they're one of the same. It really has to do with this ability to inhibit irrelevant stimuli. And if we treat, we have better treatment options for the processing piece. If we treat the processing piece, that's inherently going to toughen that auditory system and impact something called central gain. So do you know what central gain is? No, I think it, um, I think it would be nice to be able to give the the entire audience a, an understanding of it um, that you know paints the picture of you know what it is so that we can start talking about some of the different trainings that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so central gain it's a really interesting concept. You know, I think I think we think that there's like a one to one correlation with you know sensory environment. That's what our brain is picking up. But our brain actually does this kind of a nonlinear function, and it can either amplify or or turn down how we're perceiving something. Um, So the easy analogy is, you know, when you're in a movie theater during the day and you come outside and and it's too bright because your, your brain got used to seeing everything in the dark. So with autism, we know that this this is thrown off this ability and, and and not just with hearing this is with all the all the sensory functions you know it's the, the over or under sensitivity to the pain or the tag being itchy um things like that so with the set with the gain being off um if we kind of strengthen that underlying that you know the the bottom up processing piece that improves the health of the of the system, which improves the central gain. Um, and it's been really striking to me how much it's this, it's the sensitivity piece that people report improvement on. And, and you know, not just with the kids, but more the like the adults who come in to see me for this because they're really better able to articulate. Um, I'm just kind of blown away because there's really a other there's really not best a best practice protocol for um, noise intolerance or or sound sensitivity and some people really suffer from um, hyperacusis which is like a pain reaction to loud sounds or even sounds that aren't that loud um, or misophonia which is more of this like rage reaction to 
usually bodily noises like someone chewing at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so with the sound sensitivity causing some of that challenge and, and having that profound reaction as a possibility, but then also at times having a little bit more challenge being able to identify the relevant sounds at a, at a specific time and being able to filter those out. How does that tie into dichotic listening training and how does that, you know, create a, a pathway forward? Yeah, the dichotic listening training stuff is fascinating and it has it's it has to do with the uh, I love it. Like the more I get into it, the more I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> I don't shout it from the rooftop. So, you know, our brains have a specialization. So like 95, 97% of the population processes speech in the left hemisphere. So this gives us something called the right ear advantage. So um, your right ear is going to process speech sounds better because it's a direct connection to, you know, it's going through the contralateral pathway to the left hemisphere where it's processing speech. What we see a lot of times in autism or, or people who have just auditory processing deficits is a really reduced left ear compared to the right. So this you know, it's also known as amblyodia, which is akin to amblyopia. So it's just that it's a unilateral processing weakness. The left ear sends most of the information to the right hemisphere, which then has to cross corpus callosum. Corpus callosum differences and brainstem timing differences are among the most common finding um, in autism research when they look at the brain differences. So as far as like neuro neurophysiologic differences. So what's really interesting about dichotic listening, it, it, it's basically a composite skill. So in the real world, we're always listening with both ears, but there the brain is doing something in the brainstem. We, there's um, this coordination of temporal processing. So the timing of, of the inputs. And there's something it's called interoral level difference and, and timing differences. And this is how we know where sounds are coming from, because there's going to be just really like on the order of like millisecond differences between the ears. This helps us with filtering out background noise because it's it's this spatial listening ability that that let someone know, okay, I'm listening to that person talking right over there. So I'm going to focus my auditory attention on that. So if, 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 if the processing isn't symmetric, it throws off this inner oral timing and level difference. And it just makes everything kind of more of a, a cacophony and it's harder to, to maintain uh, attention on, on what you want to maintain attention on. Um, when I started this journey, you know, first it was the evidence with the devices. And I really, I was amazed by all the, the evidence out there in, in the labs. And so I just kind of followed over the past few years, I just kind of follow the, the research evidence. And so as far as auditory processing deficit training, um, I really tried to hone in on stuff that had it, that looked like it really worked. Um, you know, I didn't want to waste anybody's time doing something that was more dubious. So the dichotic listening piece comes up a lot. There's also um, some phonemic entrainment. Um, the temporal processing can be remediated, remediated with um, like a metronome type of therapeutic tool. Um, so that's that's basically what landed 
where I landed with the dichotic listening training is that there's um, a real, a really effective approach to remediate this. And like, it works like that's, <laughs> so I'm, I, cause I always, you know, I start off using my son as a guinea pig, like, okay, like this, this works like pre and post test mm-hmm. and then starting to do it on clients. And then yeah, pre and post tests, post tests are now in the normal range. But, but more important than that, the parents are like, oh my God, we can tolerate going to birthday parties now. Like, this is huge. Especially we're talking about Zachary Williams at Vanderbilt. Like this is this, this inability to tolerate noise. This is huge. This is a really, this impacts families, not just the child. It impacts the whole family. Parents are on high alert because they're constantly like, okay, we can't make any sounds. I know families who you know have to change how they talk and they can't laugh really loud and they have to really like what you're literally like literally walking on eggshells but you're walking on eggshells because you don't want to provoke the panic reaction which is real like it's 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 happening way below the level of consciousness um so that's why i'm in love with that kind of listening training because it's it's because the auditory it's it's leveraging that plasticity of the auditory system and I use a constraint-induced technique, which you often see in occupational therapy with uh, people who have strokes, which is a similar thing. If you have a stroke on one hemisphere, we need to restrain the better working side to strengthen the, the poorer side. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that l- looks is literally just I've got people between speakers. It's a, it's a method called auditory rehabilitation of interoral asymmetry. I just always refer to it as ARIA, so that's why I'm just like... I don't want to mess up my words here. Aria. Um, auditory rehabilitation of interoral asymmetry. So you're in between two speakers, dichotic materials presented. So what this means is two different words presented at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. I'm constraining the stronger side by being at a lower decibel level so that you can hear on the poorer side easier. And then based on the accuracy of the responses, I'm kind of bracketing to get to a point that's even, which mimics real life. And it strengthens that poor ear. It also calms down the too strong right ear. Thinking about the challenges that somebody must be going through to be able to, you know, just hear and and be able to process all these noises that naturally occur in the environment, which, I mean, just first of all, is that that kind of indicates that treatment needs to be in a place where they're having these naturally occurring noises, because that's part of the process is getting kind of the the toleration to it, the chance to be able to continue to work with it. Um, Mm -hmm. But that being said, you've described the need for this collaborative care, this holistic kind of treatment model, because if somebody's constantly dealing with the challenge of being able to filter out information, how are you going to develop communication, listening skills, social skills, interactive skills? Because there's always gonna be a misconception between you and other speakers. There's always gonna be that delay which makes communication so hard. So when you're talking about being able to take the auditory treatment, how do you see that fitting into a collaborative approach to care with schools, with um, other therapy models uh, for for clinics like mine that would be um, doing behavioral therapy models? Is how do you emphasize that this should be a part to it because it's going to definitely affect all of the growth that all these other environments in the community can can help to establish? 
Right. Yeah, it's it's a core deficit. So it's, it's really underlying everything. Um, how I would I envision envision it? I don't know. I mean, this is this has been the last seven, eight years of kind of trying doing trying to do it one way, trying to do it the other. You know, I think that first of all, just do stuff like this, letting people know that this is a real thing. So I present it at professional conferences to basically try to convey to other allied professionals that, you know, this is a very much a real thing and there are ways to support it. One of the other challenges that I'd actually put out there to the rest of the provider community, and that's um, that's every type of provider, is to take advantage of the work that you're putting in and start to see where it applies to doing a treatment plan that is actually looking at patient first sort of outcomes. And some of that might be is finding this partnership and doing some practical research. It's putting it into the program is that if if the advocacy hasn't stepped up yet for reimbursement models to have supported it, well, then it takes the rest of the treatment community to say, this still might be the right thing to do. So let's figure out how to incorporate it and adjust to be able to give our 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 clients, our children, the the opportunity to fully develop. Um, what would you be telling a, a parent or a educator or caregivers about, you know, this might not be something that is going to be paid for, but your treatment team maybe should be tackling these issues. And this is what I'd suggest. How would you talk to the people who come in and are receiving treatment through you about making sure it carries over? Yeah, um, this is almost the crux of my of my struggles. Um, I, you know, it's in terms of, you know, the the reality of this having to be an out of out of pocket expense is not lost on me. Yeah, I, I I wish it wasn't that way. I don't know how else to do it. Um, so a lot of times people will will say, oh well, what what can I do with speech pathology? What can we do with the covered services? And so, you know, that's when, you know, I'm, I, I'm always open to, to having conversations and meetings. I work a lot with um, like dyslexia specialists. Uh, there's a lot of overlap with auditory processing and dyslexia as well as autism. Um, but, um, and just kind of making suggestions as far as what I'm doing with the constraint induced listening therapy that has to be done by an audiologist because we need to use the audiometer. Uh, but there are other ways of, you know, working on the decoding or the discrimination of speech sounds, you know, telling the difference between a P and a B sound, things like that, that can be worked on. I also, I think that the therapeutic community, people who are more in that space of doing weekly treatment, how awesome would it be for them to look at what I'm doing and come up with their, you know, cause it's <laughs> audiologists that were so focused on testing and stuff and, you know, maybe this niche treatment, but actually like how the flow of therapy, this is their domain. Um, and I bet if there were some, some way to subsidize really working on that together, it would be amazing. Yeah, that consultative model of care, I think, is is very important in order to make sure specialists are guiding 
the treatment components that they know best. And mm-hmm. I think this is a prime example of it. Um, where where would you tell families to go to be able to learn about it, to be able to, to read about it, to get some resources that maybe will guide them to say, hey, you know what, I should be seeking this sort of treatment or talking to my clinical team to say, where can I access this? So where are the resources to be able to go to learn more? Yeah. Well, if someone's more interested in kind of the the theories and the the science behind it, I would start with uh, Nina Krause's work. Um, she's at Northwestern University. Her website, um, Brain Volts, um, and I'll I'll link. I'll give you guys all the links to all the things. But and then people can always um, reach out to me. I'm a I'm a one woman show, so I might take a few weeks to respond to emails. But um, people can always reach out, and then I can try to help out with local resources as best I can. But it's um, it's tricky to find. I think a lot of people will default to occupational therapy for uh, sound sensitivity. Um, you want to be really mindful of desensitizing versus auditory toughening. So um, I just want to throw that out there with with people who are are doing any kind of therapeutic work with the sound sensitivity is that, you know, that it's all happening like brainstem level. Like there's when we think of desensitizing for like a fear of spiders or something, you know, it's like if you look at a picture of a spider and you calming techniques and your top down mechanism is calming you down. We can't we can't do that with sound. Um, it's too hardwired built into our limbic system to, so that we like hear predators and threats while we're sleeping and things like that. Uh, But there are ways to systematically toughen that auditory system. Um, So finding, it's other parents, right? So parents in the community, I mean, those are always the best. I feel like that's always been the best way to find information and resources. Like go to your local parent community. Hey, who do you see for blah, blah, blah. if you're in a small town or not near someone, I do have some colleagues that will do like remote types of, of therapy. So there are some options, um, but it's we're just not at a place where it's part of the standard of care. Yeah, and it, but it sounds like it's it's something that if if folks have the ability or the resources to be able to find something nearby or utilize virtual services, that there's an, there's an inherent help to all the other treatment that, that your child might be receiving. And it's all about empowerment. It's all about being able to establish more opportunity, more access, more mm-hmm. uh, kind of ability to be able to experience everything in life that you want to. And if you don't have those auditory skills yet, like you said, it's something that can be learned. It's something that can be developed and it just takes the right training. So Vanessa, I appreciate you coming on today to share the information and hopefully we can create more discussion around it and that we can start to broaden so it's not so hard to access. But I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. 
Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.